Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, I have the opportunity to talk to someone who has decades of experience working with some of today's top tech companies in both Japan and China, Gen Kanai. Gen is a Japanese-American who has worked with Toyota USA, Sony USA, Sony Japan, Digital Garage, Mozilla, and most recently, Animoca Brands. Throughout this discussion, Gen gives us a history lesson on why eBay failed and Yahoo won with an auction platform in Japan and how Google won in Japan in spite of itself, simply because Yahoo Japan chose them as their preferred search engine instead of the Yahoo US favored Bing. We talk about how Twitter has been such a large success in Japan and that anonymity is an underlying reason why. We also discuss the impact China can have on a U.S.-based tech company through a look back at why, after a trip to China, Snapchat's CEO demanded changes to their platform that their U.S. user base simply wasn't ready for. We end the show with some important takeaways on how to be success-ready when entering Asian markets like China or Japan. Enjoy. I think Spiegel assumed that what worked in China would work for a non-China Snapchat audience. And that's just not true. The The markets are different. China is significantly different from the rest of the world for uh, multiple reasons. I think it's dangerous when a CEO comes to China or comes to East Asia, sees some shiny object, sees some new trend, you know, tries to implement that trend without uh, more context, without better understanding why that feature or that product or whatever uh, does well in an East Asian market. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Gen, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Todd. Why don't we start with a bit of a self-introduction? Uh, where are you from? A bit about your background, how you ended up in Asia, and so on. Certainly. So my name is Gen Kanai. I'm Japanese-American, uh, born and raised in New York City. After university, I worked at uh, Toyota in uh, their American headquarters, in uh, at, which was at the time Torrance, California, for four years. One year in strategic planning and uh, three years uh, building uh, Toyota's uh, basically first internet infrastructure, both consumer-facing and dealer-facing websites. I then worked for uh, Sony uh, a couple years in uh, New Jersey, building internet-connected uh, devices. And then a few years in, to uh, Sony sent me to Tokyo. And so I worked in Tokyo doing internet strategy for Sony. Then worked for a uh, startup uh, search engine, um, and then the chairman or one of the board members of the company that was backing the startup uh, search engine uh, brought me over to Mozilla. So I spent uh, 10 years at Mozilla uh, 
in their Tokyo office. So I opened the Tokyo office. I opened the Beijing office. I launched most, if not all, of the activities that Mozilla did in Southeast Asia and even South Asia. At the end of my 10 years, um, there was a, pro- a large project to build a ultra-low-cost uh, mobile phone using Mozilla software. It was called uh, Firefox Mobile. And I launched that phone with a team of other people in India, Bangladesh, Philippines, uh, Indonesia, I think. Yeah. And then uh, my wife got a role in China, in Shanghai. So in 2016, we moved to uh, China for her role. And uh, I then uh, found a role with uh, Animoca Brands, which is uh, sort of a mid-sized gaming company. Uh, that does both uh, casual mobile and uh, blockchain-based uh, games. So I'm doing a business development for Animoca Brands. I want to speak to some of the uh, office opening and some of the, the country and market entry work that you've done. Can you talk to us a little bit about the challenges of entering East Asian markets, specifically Japan, but but also China to an extent? Yeah, I I can definitely talk a lot about Japan. I I spent uh, more well more than a decade in Japan, both with Sony and Mozilla and a startup. Uh, so I've taken a, you know a real close look at the uh, internet sector in Japan, uh, largely the consumer side, not so much the B two B. You know, Japan is is this really interesting uh, and challenging market. It's interesting because. Japanese customers pay for software. They pay for content. They uh, generally do not pirate um, <laughs> pirate you know content for the most part. So, um, for instance, like average revenue per user for mobile, a lot of mobile games is almost always highest in Japan. Um, as an example. Uh, and then there are a lot of aspects to Japan. Uh, so, so basically, it, it it can be a very profitable market if you can crack the market. If you have a product that fits, uh, that's popular in the Japanese market. But it's also a very challenging market. There are a lot of uh, non-Japanese companies or Western companies that have tried and failed in Japan. And so I can talk a little bit about some of those prominent failures that I've seen over the years, and then some prominent successes as well. And then China, you know, I have a number of years in China now, five years. There's one example that I wanted to talk to uh, about uh, taking sort of the wrong lesson from China. But I think the main thing about China is that it's really hard as a foreign uh, entity to enter uh, the consumer segment in uh, China for a whole host of reasons that we can go go into uh, later. I'd like to have you speak a little bit about what happened to eBay in Japan. Yeah, eBay is a fascinating uh, example, and it's now a number of years old. Uh, but I still think uh, I still think it's a really important lesson that holds a lot of a very important example that holds a lot of lessons mm-hmm. for uh, companies that are trying to enter the Japanese market. To summarize, 
eBay failed in Japan. Um, and they made a number of uh, critical mistakes along the way. Um, and uh, essentially, when eBay was rising, uh, you know, was uh, successful in the U.S. and they were starting to expand uh, internationally, Japan was just one of multiple markets that eBay was trying to crack overseas. And so they had a number of people working on it, I'm sure, but it wasn't, you know, certainly their only priority. And uh, news got back to Jerry Yang of Yahoo, uh, who was then running Yahoo, that eBay was, you know, obviously uh, launching new international efforts. And Jerry called uh, his friend and uh, investor, Masayoshi Son at SoftBank, and said to Masa, eBay is expanding. Don't let them enter Japan. You should start an auction service before they do. And that's exactly what happened. Um, Masa went to Yahoo Japan management. This is at a time when Yahoo Japan was one-third owned by Yahoo US. Uh, so there was a very tight relationship between uh, Yahoo Japan and Yahoo US, but they were separate entities, so to speak. Um, and basically, Masa told the Yahoo Japan team, you know, start an auction service ASAP. Yahoo Japan managed to get a bare bones auction ser service up and running in September of 1999. Well, eBay Japan, because they took too much time to research or whatever. They didn't launch until five months after Yahoo Japan had launched. They made eBay Japan also made a number of other critical errors. They charged commissions uh, for transactions, uh, for auction transactions, and Yahoo Japan uh, did not charge commissions. So this was a foreign competitor um, entering a new market charging customers, where, whereas the domestic uh, incumbent, so to speak, who had started an auction service a number of months before eBay, uh, was not charging commissions. Uh, eBay Japan required credit cards and did not provide any non-card payments. And 20 years ago, credit cards are fairly uh, popular here in Japan now, uh, but there's still a, a fairly large segment of of Japanese consumers that don't use credit cards or prefer not to use credit cards. And 20 years ago in 1999, uh, the percentage of Japanese customers that had credit cards was much, much lower. So for various reasons, I'm sure there were, you know, multiple reasons why eBay went with credit cards. Yahoo Japan offered multiple payment options, including payment at uh, convenience stores or um, bank deposit, uh, and eBay had none of these options. Um, the final decision that I think eBay made regarding Japan that I think was the wrong one uh, in hindsight was that Meg Whitman, who was uh, head of eBay at the time, chose a prominent Japanese-American entrepreneur, uh, a lady by the name of Merle Okawara. Miss Okawara is a sort of a... a really impressive entrepreneur who started um, uh, basically frozen pizza in Japan. She brought the idea of frozen pizza to Japan. Mm. And I think eventually uh, either 
ran Domino's or whatever became the the big the start of Domino's or Pizza Hut. I forget which one. She had the hero story. Yeah, uh, for sure. And she was, you know, really well respected as as uh, the sort of uh, leading business person in Japan. And I think, you know, Japanese American. So there was no cultural barrier between her and Meg. Um, but she didn't really understand the internet. And she was in her 50s uh, when uh, all this was happening in 1999. She just was not the right person to run uh, an internet uh, business. She didn't have the right background. She didn't have the knowledge about uh, internet businesses. She had networks in Japan, of course, but probably not in the right segments. So I think for various reasons, including the fact that eBay launched uh, after Yahoo Japan. They were charging commissions. eBay required credit cards and had, I think, almost no other payment options and the wrong leadership. Essentially, mm-hmm. uh, eBay Japan was was a failure. So in uh, 2002, uh, eBay closes uh, the Japan entity, fires uh, the 17 staff that they had hired uh, over the years, and uh, that was sort of the end of of, uh, of eBay Japan. What would you say are the lessons learned to summarize from all the mistakes that eBay made there? I think you know it's a very common, um, commonly known that first mover advantage is really important in the in- internet segment. And I think in this case, the partnership friendship that Jerry Yang and Masayoshi Son had uh, with Yahoo and Yahoo Japan enabled Yahoo Japan to have that first mover advantage over eBay. I think the other thing is that the domestic the domestic player, Yahoo Japan in this case, had the already had users and the trust uh, and was able to market and market their new auction service to their existing, you know, user base, which was gigantic even 20 years ago. Whereas eBay Japan was an outside entity coming into a new market, had to market the eBay name, which nobody in Japan knew it, had known at the time, and had to try and take share away from Yahoo, who had launched before. So, in many ways, I think it was it was a it was sort of an impossible task. I think the key thing that is that eBay Japan did not invest enough, um, didn't move fast enough, didn't launch before, uh, didn't prioritize the Japanese market. They probably had multiple markets they were working on. Japan was just one of multiple markets. Uh, whereas Yahoo Japan was, you know, hell bent on defending its own home turf, so to speak. How has Google done in Japan? I would say Google has done very well in Japan and I, believe it, Japan is the second most profitable market for Japan uh, for Google after the US. Um, I could be wrong about that, but that's my understanding. But the thing that I think most people don't realize about Google Japan is that uh, Google did not sweep into the Japan market and uh, in a few years uh, take the search market away from the domestic competitor at the time. Uh, in fact, it wasn't until the domestic uh, search leader, which is Yahoo Japan, essentially 
hired uh, Google Japan to be the backend search that Google could then claim that it, it was, you know, driving a majority of the searches of Japan. So I would say that Google Japan struggled for a long time to, to gain market share. Uh, they were able to get a significant amount of market share relatively early. A lot of these early adopters and younger uh, internet savvy folks jumped onto Google uh, very quickly. But the majority of uh, mainstream Japanese users still use uh, Yahoo Japan for search. And uh, for a long time, um, Google could not access those users. So, Google came to Japan, I think, in 2000 or 2001 and struggled to gain market share for a long time uh, until uh, 2010, which is the year that um, Yahoo US, which was providing search services for Yahoo Japan, switched to Bing. And Bing had really terrible search results for Japanese. And so it wasn't until that basically forced Yahoo Japan to select Google Japan, a Google as a search provider that Google could then say, you know, we dominate search in Japan. Um, and I was, you know, in Japan for the bulk of the time uh, where Google was struggling. And I have a number of fascinating examples that I uh, have saved from that time where uh, Google was trying uh, different home pages. So uh, the home page that everybody knows today, this very simple home page that Google has around the world with just a search engine and a couple of links to Gmail and whatever. In 2008, Google was still struggling and they were trying out different homepages in Japan, but also in Korea and China. And um, this is an audio podcast, so I can't show screenshots, but maybe you can uh, put links to some of these screenshots uh, in the show notes. But essentially, Google tried in East Asia these different homepages in Japan, Korea and China that look nothing like what we know of uh, Google homepage today. I mean, they were filled with links. To, they were filled with uh, news updates and weather and all the stuff that, you know, you don't expect on a, on a sort of a clean, simple Google homepage. And I think, um, you know, even as of 2008, because Google was trying these different homepages in East Asia, they were struggling to to gain traction, to gain users, to understand the market. You know, this is an American company who came in, uh, got an initial user base, but wasn't able to crack into the mainstream of certainly of the Japan market. Um, and I think even as of this year, even as of 2020, I would say that Yahoo Japan has a dominant uh, internet presence in Japan. And while Google does control search in Japan, it doesn't do that without the market share that Google uh, Yahoo Japan brings. So I would say that Japan is not a mar search market that Google won natively. It's more that Bing caused Yahoo Japan to have to switch providers. And I think 
I think most people don't don't know that, and most people don't appreciate that. You know, the incumbents in Japan, Yahoo Japan, in this case, uh, is still a you know major destination uh, for you know the majority of mainstream uh, you know internet. It's a site that I check even every day just to see what what they're showing. What about Twitter in Japan? Twitter is one of those popular not popular it it it's it is it's one of those success stories that should have more business cases written about it because it was one of those um services that would have been popular no matter what essentially the product was viral in Japan even before uh Twitter launched a, a Japanese office the pop, the feature set, the, you know, w- the core functionality of Twitter was just so, um, suited to the Japanese market. Um, so I would say that anonymity, the anonymity of, of Twitter is a key feature. Uh, the Japanese market for a lot of different reasons really values anonymity. And uh, one reason why Twitter is uh, a significant reason why Twitter is as popular in Japan as, you know, it's, I think, I know for sure that Twitter is the second most uh, valuable market for Twitter worldwide, but it, the anonymity is a key feature. Um, and they made some key fir- first hires, key management hires for the Japan market that, really understood uh, the Japanese market and was able to, you know, execute effectively. And then I would say that, yeah, it was basically a product that was perfect for the Japanese market. And once the organization and management was in place, the execution was done well. So it was kind of just like pouring gas on a fire. And I would say Twitter is still dominant in Japan and is, you know, it, it, you see Twitter all over the place in advertising and marketing, um, on you know TV commercials, and you know it's it's ubiquitous. Um, it's a very successful uh, platform in Japan. Is there a particular digital behavior fingerprint of J- Japanese users of digital and social that? is really uh, hopefully that some companies are understanding but it was it something baked into that that really just helped twitter be successful um i think it's hard to generalize across a whole nation of users um but i do think that anonymity is a feature set that uh, is a feature that is highly valued in hmm. um, in Japan. Mm-hmm. In China, in the very early days of WeChat, as I remember, people created odd usernames. They'd never had their actual picture as their avatar. Um, you you really had you couldn't search and find somebody you might know and track them down. Not like search, searching somebody's name on Facebook. 
But but WeChat accounts are eventually tied to a phone number. Yes. Yeah. Which are eventually tied to right. But in in Twitter, you can have a fully anonymous account. Oh, true, 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 true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So for the casual scroller, right? You you know, it was uh, you you could certainly still authenticate somebody. Yeah. I would say that there are a lot of you know. I mean, like I said, the the the, the fact that Twitter can be a fully uh, anonymous, um, uh, you can have a fully anonymous account on Twitter is one of the reasons why it's, it's very popular. Can I ask to even drill down further? Um, yeah, I think, you know, it's a, uh, Japan is a very, I think everybody knows or anybody, anybody who comes to Japan will know that it's a very homogenous culture. And it's a fairly rigid culture in the in the sense that there are a lot of cultural structures around uh, how people speak to each other, how younger people speak to el- elder people, people elder than older than them. Um, there's a lot of you know cultural rules, and so Twitter gives people uh, Japanese users a freedom that they don't have in their in their daily life. Uh, to, you know, say what they want, um, share what they really feel in, uh, you know, on a, on, in a fully anonymous uh, way that most people don't have in real life. You know, you can't criticize, you know, your elder, uh, openly, let's say in a business session, in a business situation or, you know, in school or something like that, but, but you, you can on Twitter. So. Uh, I think it gives people freedom uh, to speak, to say what they want. Okay. Let's go even younger. What about Snapchat? What about Snapchat in China? Yeah, I think, you know, this was um, this was discussed uh, when Evan Spiegel came to China, but there was a, a, a prominent visit where Evan Spiegel, the CEO of Snapchat, came to China and just saw how vibrant and how um yeah vibrant and different the sort of photo sharing so- social photo photo space is in east asia and and how different china is from the rest of the world and essentially he goes back to los angeles and mandates all these changes to the plat to his own platform because he saw you know, all these things working really well in, in China. He thought he saw the future. Exactly. Exactly. And essentially, um, he tried to replicate things that he saw with WeChat, with, uh, Weibo. He neglected to realize that the user base is very different. Uh, and the existing user base at the time at Snapchat was just not ready for radical changes to a platform that they were using. A lot of the users revolted, and most, if not all, of the changes that Spiegel had mandated were uh, reverted back to, to you know, a previous um, design. I think Spiegel assumed that what worked in China would work in a for a non-China Snapchat audience, audience, and that's just not true. the The markets are different. China is significantly different from the rest of the world for uh, multiple reasons. Um, that we can discuss, but, you know, I think Spiegel, I think it's dangerous when a CEO comes to China or comes to East Asia 
sees some shiny object, sees some new trend, you know, tries to implement that trend without uh, more context, without better understanding why that feature or that product or whatever uh, does well in an East Asian market. I mean, there are certainly our cases where those products will do well in the West, but it's not always the case. And I would say that, you know, if you look at other markets, again, it's each market is, let's say other East Asian markets or uh, other Southeast Asian markets or South Asian markets. Again, the markets are very different from each other. And you can maybe take some general ideas from markets in Asia, but uh, taking direct examples and trying to uh, bring a product, fr- you know, from let's say India or whatever directly to the U.S. and expecting it to be successful, often you you know you won't see that same success. Here's an off the cuff question that may mm-hmm. not make it. What was the most fun part about working with Mozilla, and what was the most difficult thing about taking Mozilla into the different markets you did? I would say the best part of Mozilla, um, I think most people know Mozilla for Firefox. And um, the best part of Mozilla was the was being able to work with the users, um, with the community, so to speak. Now, a lot of companies talk about community these days. And it is community is critically important no matter, you know, uh, who you are for any consumer focused um uh, product or service. But for Mozilla, community is really, really important. Mozilla is a nonprofit organization. Um, they have a fraction of the budgets of, you know, let's say Google or Apple or Microsoft, the companies that have comp- competing browsers. And so the only thing that Mozilla has that the you know, these multi-billion dollar businesses have don't have is a sort of this rabid fan base of uh, Firefox users that are really, um, you know, they really love the product. They love the nonprofit mission. Uh, they love the fact that uh, Firefox doesn't, um, you know, make money off of the users directly kind of a thing. Um, and so being able to work with those communities all around Asia was, I think, the best part uh, of uh, working for that organization. The most challenging part, I would say, are the markets that were totally close to us. So South Korea, uh, for the whole 10 years that I was at Mozilla, was a market that was closed to Firefox. And this was because of technical decisions that the Korean um, market had made regarding internet banking and uh, that sort of thing. The technologies that uh, essentially worked in Korea only worked with Internet Explorer. You couldn't do any kind of internet. This was back in the day, but you couldn't do any kind of internet banking or stock trading or any kind of secure transaction in Korea without using Internet Explorer. So if you were a Mac user, you were out of, out of luck. If you were you know, a Chrome user or a Firefox user, you were out of luck. You had to use IE. So that was a pretty frustrating uh, market, I would say. Is the Mozilla business model, if you can call it that, is that a viable business model today? Is the, the, the open source nonprofit 
you know, kind of community collaborative business model, something that more companies should be adopting, or is it just not possible? It is possible, but with caveats. So for instance, um, Mozilla started as, uh, you know, I think most people know Mozilla came out of uh, Netscape. So Netscape failed. Uh, key people left Netscape um, and basically started Mozilla out of the ashes of Netscape. Um, Mozilla was really lucky. It was right before I joined, but essentially the story is, is that Mozilla was started uh, in a small office in Mountain View and next door were the offices of Google and Google was just also starting at the time. And they, the Google engineers had seen like the original, uh, Mozilla Phoenix, like the early beta versions before it was named Firefox. And they really liked what they saw when, uh, Basically, people, the engineers at Mozilla stripped out everything from Netscape Communicator and, and made this stripped down fast browser. And so the story is, is that uh, Sergey Brin and Larry Page walked over, <laughs> walked across the street to Mozilla's offices and met with Mitchell Baker and Brendan Ike at the time and said, we love the product. You know, how can we, how can we help you succeed? And they created this. Uh, business model at the time where um, Google would be featured as the default search and a fraction of the ads that were shown to the, the on the search results from those searches would be uh, would be paid to Mozilla. And I think, you know, just the, the success of Firefox over the years, well, the initial success of Firefox totally uh, blew everyone away. The, the expectations, the projections that the Google engineers uh, had, um, you know, it, it was multiple times the traffic and the payments. And, uh, you know, I think at, at one point, I don't know what the numbers are now, but, you know, Google, Google was paying like $300 million plus a year to, to Mozilla. I think at its height, um, and that's why Google e eventually needed to own its own, um, to create its own browser and to own its own uh, platform from start to finish, which is why they obviously created the Chrome project and Chrome product and, you know, then Android, et cetera. So um, it's still, I think, a lucrative product. Um, I think, I don't know what the market share is now. It's probably below 10%. So it, I don't think the numbers are nearly what they used to be, but it's still a business that probably makes, you know, well north of a hundred million dollars, um, a year. You really need to have, so open source is just like a feature of, I mean, it's a key feature, but it's not why, I mean, it's one of the reasons why people use it, but it's not the only reason why people use it. And so I think open source is, is not a business model. It's sort of a, a way of working and you need to have a, a business model in addition to just being open source. So final thoughts uh, on maybe Japan entry or even Asia entry, if you might. Yeah. I mean, I would say the calculus is really different now. Um, I would say in the consumer segment, China is really, I really struggle to 
to name any major non-Chinese consumer-facing internet business in China. The only one that I can name at the moment it would be Airbnb. Airbnb still has a significant China business, but it's unclear how long more that will last. Uh, certainly, with COVID, you know that whole sector is is challenged a lot. Um, and I would say, you know, entering China in the internet sector as a consumer-facing business from uh, outside of China is a really, it's probably one of the most difficult challenges uh, in, you know, in, in today's, uh, you know, in the global market. You don't include LinkedIn at all. I mean, I, and I'm, I'm asking that somewhat naively because maybe they aren't doing as well. And of course I was a foreigner there, but. Yeah, I don't know how they're doing. My understanding is that, you know, Chinese people are not, you know, there's a small fraction of uh, Chinese people who probably speak English and maybe have studied overseas who used LinkedIn, but the vast, vast majority, you know, the 800 million plus um, Chinese users, they're not, they're not using LinkedIn. But I know, I think, and I've heard, and I've been told that their staying power is at least supported by the fact that one of the, one thing that LinkedIn did properly was that when they came to China, they rebuilt the product in China for all of the nuances that China has, so that it really was correct of right playing ball. Yeah, I mean it's a whole different. I, I believe it's a different product. The data, the user data, is kept in China. You know all that sort of thing. So yes, I would. I think that is uh, that is the case. Um, I would say for Japan, um, Japan is one of those markets that, it, as I mentioned before, it can be very lucrative if you are successful. But I think for most companies, it takes a long time to be successful. You know, sales cycles are easily six months uh, here in Japan, and a lot of people don't expect that. Uh, people expect uh, you know two month sales cycle or maybe a three month sales cycle, but uh, just building those relationships, building the trust. Um, you know, if you're a Japanese company pitching a Japanese company, you know there's a lot more trust that you have walking into a business meeting versus a Western company, a non Japanese company pitching a Japanese uh, customer. Um, just the sales cycles are just much longer um, in Japan. That said, if you can get good paying customers in Japan, those customers usually will stay much longer with you than a lot of customers would in other markets. So um, that's the, you know, that's the payoff, so to speak, is that uh, profitability should be higher in Japan because uh, Japanese users have the money and, uh, do pay for digital services for software, uh, you know, very low piracy rates, that sort of thing. And then even though sales cycles do take a lot longer, um, customers will stay with um, suppliers or, or, or uh, service providers uh, for longer than you might expect uh, in comparison to other markets. 
I think the the other challenge that is similar in both uh, China and Japan and certainly other markets is identifying management that you can trust. And that is just such a hard uh, challenge that, you know, you can't, I, nobody can discuss, can, it's just not something that I can explain in even a one or two hour podcast. There's just so many different variables and it's just really hard to find uh, good management that you can trust. You know, the, the domestic markets in China and Japan have so many options for uh, Japanese or Chinese management that getting them to move to a uh, non-Japanese um, employer when, let's say, uh, you know, in the case of, let's say, the, the management of eBay, you know, they probably left some good job at a Japanese firm to join the startup, and then two, three years later, they get laid off, uh, you know. That was a significant risk for those those employees, and they kind of paid the price for that. And I think um, that's why you see – that's why it's very, very difficult to find um, high-quality, dual-language, uh, experienced managers. It, those people are very, very rare, and you have to pay them well to, to keep them uh, – to find them and to keep them. Again, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been an amazing and eye-opening uh, kind of walk through some of the most prominent technological companies that we have in the world today and how they've fared in multiple Asian countries. So thank you very much for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Todd. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Ding.